Hello, Pija Pearls listeners. We're back with a brand new Industry 101 episode. It's been a minute since we've been here, so I thought I would help you get caught up. So far in our series, episode one was an Ask Me Anything of sorts with Dr. Harper Price, our program host. She talked about her experience with industry, clinical trials, and how rewarding that work can be. In episode two, Dr. Price met with Dr. Lee Zane, whose varied career in both clinical academic medicine and as a medical officer in pharma led to a fantastic discussion on clinical trials. And now we're here with episode three, working with large and small companies. As a new investigator trying to break into clinical trials and working with industry, it's tough to know where to begin. Are large companies out of reach? Are small companies at risk of going under? Where do you start? Does your networking strategy need to change depending on the size of the company you're approaching? Well, welcome to episode three, working with large and small pharma. In this episode, our host, Dr. Price, talks about the differences and similarities between large and small companies with Dr. Michael Howell and Dr. Jim Lee. Before beginning, I'd like to thank our program supporters, Arcutus Biotherapeutics, Dermavant Sciences, Galderma, Insight, Sanofi Genzyme, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. This is an independent medical education program, and PEDRA is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. Now I would like to introduce your host, Dr. Harper Price. Dr. Price is the Division Chief of the Department of Dermatology at Phoenix Children's Hospital. She is the Director of the Multidisciplinary Congenital and Genetic Skin Disease Clinic and Epidermolysis Bullosa Clinic at PCH, as well as the co-director of the Vascular Anomalies Clinic. She's an active member and fellow of the American Academy of Dermatology, American Academy of Pediatrics, Society for Pediatric Dermatology, and of course, the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. I would also like to introduce our guests, Dr. Michael Howell. Dr. Howell is the Chief Scientific Officer and Head of Translational Science at Zura Bio. He is also the founder of Mountaineer Biosciences and co-founder of Galileo Biosystems. I'd also like to introduce Dr. Jim Lee. Dr. Lee is the group vice president and head of the inflammation and autoimmunity group at Insight. Thank you so much for being here, everyone. Dr. Price, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Jen, and welcome back everyone to our Industry 101 podcast. We have an exciting group with for you tonight, and uh, we hope that you'll enjoy our speakers as, as we know you will. We are going to be discussing big and large pharma. So what is small pharma and big pharma with our two guests, uh, Dr. Michael Howell and Dr. Jim Lee. We're so thankful to have you tonight. This goes in well with our previous podcast when we talked about clinical trials, how to get started in research. So when you're really thinking about where does your interest fit in a smaller, maybe rare disease company that might have some small molecules or might be a smaller group for you to start to work with, but maybe some less resources to start out with versus a big company. We all know uh, several big names that tend to do a lot of marketing, a lot of R&D, uh, have a lot of funds to put behind uh, bigger name drugs, lots of pipelines as well. 
And how these two are sort of intermarried now, I think, is an interesting topic in itself and how they're working together. So we have a lot of great questions for Dr. Howell and Dr. Lee tonight. So I think we'll start out tonight uh, by giving a little background on both of you. I'll call on you individually. Dr. Lee, I'll, I'll start with you. Can you just give us a quick summary of your background, uh, the different types of companies you worked for, and what you exactly do right now for our audience? I'll start with what I do now, and, and that is uh, overseeing the clinical development group that does uh, that does research into dermatology and other immunology areas at Insight. I've been with Insight for about five years. Uh, I've been with both big and small pharma and biotech companies in my 25 years of experience, mostly in the clinical development space, uh, but also uh, overseeing uh, R&D organizations, but all in, in working in the medical affairs area as well. So lots of experience and uh, both from a, a big pharma, a medium-sized pharma, as well as a small biotech perspective. Great. Thank you. That was a great overview. And now, Dr. Howe, I'll call on you. I know you also have like 25 plus years experience as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now and sort of some of your other experiences and backgrounds over the years? Absolutely. And so I'll start very quickly with it, just a brief um, kind of differentiation between Jim and I, and actually we have an overlap at one point as well. Great. But one of the big differences is that when I started off, I started off as a straight PhD within the field of immunology. And so there's a slightly different path as you think about going through your career. And so I started off within the academic world at National Jewish and was there for about eight years, uh, both as a postdoc and then as a research fellow and then ultimately as a faculty member. Um, and once I left National Jewish, ended up going through a variety of, of both big and small pharmas as well, um, including Beringer Ingelheim, AstraZeneca, uh, Insight Corporation, where Jim and I actually overlapped and got the chance to work together for several years. Um, and then after I left, uh, Insight ended up taking over as a CSO at DermTech to really focus on some of the precision medicine aspects of it before assuming my now role of a chief scientific officer at Zura. And part of what I get to do on a day-to-day -day basis is as we, we are a very small company, um, we're about 15 people right now. We just flipped to go public, uh, earlier this year. Um, it's a little bit of everything on the smaller side of it. And so, we get to interact and play the role of medical affairs. I get to help out on clinical development, um, design uh, translational studies as well, and start to think about how do we raise awareness to the therapeutics that we're bringing uh, into the clinical trials for patients with an unmet need. I mean, both of you have amazing uh, accolades. It's it's really cool as someone who loves research to hear that you can do all those different things, um, you know, over the span of that of those careers. Maybe I'll ask a little bit just for our audiences, because I'm curious too, and I'll just go to you, Dr. Howell, because you mentioned um, big, small, medium. I think you both kind of talked about size. Can you kind of let our, our listeners know when you really talk small, you know, you mentioned publicly traded, um, small number of employees. What are we talking about when someone like me says, well, I really want to get into research. How do you look at these companies based on size? Like, What are we considering small, medium, large? I think it depends on the company a little bit. Um, you can have some companies. So, for example, when I actually joined Insight, Insight was about 600 people. Uh, so back in 2016, when I had actually joined there, um, and it actually felt like a very small company. It was not a large company in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, and part of that was just due to the fact that within the various divisions that are make up of what Insight was at the time, that you felt this close knit group and a family. And so it really had more of a a, a true biotech feel as opposed to some of the other larger organizations where 
um, you'll walk into a kind of scientific group that has several hundred people. And so you feel as though you're an individual contributing to the much larger mix of it. Um, but it really comes down to how you feel as an individual walking into the group, what's the overall culture of that group, and then how do they incorporate you? But Jim, would love to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah, I think um, there, there are a lot of different ways to define a size, whether you're a medium, small uh, biopharma company and biotech company. And I think, you know, obviously Michael alluded to the uh, number of employees um, that work at a company, as well as the culture, which I think is is a very important uh, component of uh, of how a company defines itself, of how, how they describe themselves. But I think uh, so much of it will will depend on um, the focus of the company and the commitment to a specific therapeutic area. You, you know, the bigger companies uh, are fairly large, and um, and so they have lots of different divisions within the company. And so, because of the different divisions, there's there's additional steps that it takes uh, to get um, a commitment to 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 study a disease. Um, whereas a biotech company, because there are fewer people and also less resources, uh, you, you can get decisions made faster. That's a, another way that distinguishes the various sizes of companies is, is sort of the speed at, they, at which they move and the decision-making process and, the, and, the, and the, really the, the commitment to a specific disease and indoor therapeutic area. As a, a sort of mid-career investigator, I would love to hear your thoughts, Dr. Leon, you know, let's say we have a, a junior investigator, someone who's in academics or wanting to start clinical trial involvement. Uh, you know, how, what do you suggest, you know, based on these different companies, the sizes and the things that you've just mentioned, kind of the pluses and minuses, how someone might decide what their fit is for their first foray into clinical trials? That's a, that's a great question. And I think um, there are different components to how a uh, uh, a mid-level or mid-career investigator should think about that. I think so much of it will depend on the the quality training, the GCP training that that individual has gone through, assuming that that their experience and now want to build up uh, the clinical trial unit and the number of clinical trials they want to participate in. It, you know, there are a number of variables that that individual needs to take into consideration. Obviously, I think the most important thing is the the diseases of interest, as well as the molecules and sort of the belief uh, that that molecule might have um, potential to help those patients. And so, for me, the, you know, I think those are the two most important things because it it really points to the interest of the individual investigator um, and their commitment to to a specific study. There are some practical considerations that an investigator should should always consider. That is that most companies uh, use competitive uh, enrollment, and um, and and so and then also some companies are easier to to agree to a you know contract with and so forth. So those are all the variables that an investigator should really be thinking about as they uh, contemplate uh, what companies to work with. Uh, but I think the the most important thing is really the diseases of interest that that individual has as well as um, the, the potential for those new medicines to impact those patients. That's great. So disease of interest, um, how, you know, practical considerations, what your belief is, what's your belief on that molecule or that that drug. What about Dr. Howell, if, if someone's very junior? Sure. And to echo Jim a little bit there, it's, I think it depends on the therapeutic area you're going after. Yeah. You know, each company, whether it's large or small, is going to have core competencies and they're going to have core focuses. 
Um, and so as you think from an investigator's point of view, these are the areas that I want to pursue. And perhaps it is, it's an ultra rare dermatological indication. And you start thinking about what are the potential places that you could go. There's a number of kind of um, companies that are out there in this space that you could pursue in a variety of avenues. And the first part just starts with an introduction. Um, whether it's a large company or whether it's a small company, quite honestly, being able to um, clearly delineate what the problem is that you're trying to address and then approaching individuals within the company to find out what their level of either recognition to what that problem might look like or um, if they're open to those kinds of conversation is going to give you that first either foot in the door to realize that there is an opportunity for you to partner or collaborate with them as you explore that opportunity or to think about other options as you go forward. And again, you may find, for example, if it's the therapeutic that you're looking to potentially use, if it's in a life cycle management phase, then they may be more apt to use that in kind of a um, off target or, or something, I shouldn't say off target, but more of a investigator initiated type of a trial, right. um, rather than going through and thinking about it as an early biotech. The biggest difference really within that early biotech space is they don't necessarily have the capital or the means to go through and explore every indication, but they're gonna protect their asset as much as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the information that we get from some of the investigator led trials, we're then, um, you know, we have to maintain that level of awareness as we take that program forward as well, both good or bad. You know, if, it, if it's a, uh, an investigator just starting off and they wanna get experience, sometimes going or participating in, in a larger study, like a phase three study, it is a good way. The, re the reason I say that is in the phase two studies typically are smaller with, and utilize fewer sites. And, and typically those companies um, have identified uh, their sites that they want to work with. Whereas in a phase three, because uh, many phase three programs uh, require over 100 sites, clinical sites uh, to participate, uh, sometimes it's easier to, to get involved at that level initially at that level than it is with a smaller study. So now, now obviously the other the other um, end of the spectrum is if you have a specialty clinic and in, in a in a more rare disease population, then obviously you know you want to look for uh, to work with companies that are developing drugs in, in those diseases of of interest to you. So so that it, it really depends on on your level of interest. But so if you're just starting off and you want to just get involved a, a phase three study is is a really good way of getting started and then obviously um for the specialty uh, areas and the the specific diseases uh searching out and, and contacting companies working in that space yeah i think that that's great advice i like what you said about you know if you really want to get into a disease area like a big disease area like atopic dermatitis that's pretty competitive but because we are tend to enroll a lot of patients and have a lot of sites I would also add, use your relationships with your other senior colleagues to introduce you to people, the people that are doing trials. I, I got involved in trials, as I had said before, I think on this podcast by people saying, hey, reach out to Harper. She really wants to get involved. We like her, we trust her. So relationship building with some of the bigger companies and the smaller companies having specialty clinics like EB, epidermolysis bullosa, or even a severe eczema clinic was very attractive to a lot of pharma companies because they knew we were seeing a lot of patients and getting a lot of different experience and we had the population to recruit. So I think those are really great um, suggestions. When we're kind of looking and exploring, you know, large, small companies, 
is there is there a good place to go? Uh, is it is it website based to sort of understand their priorities in their pipeline? My my encouragement to any kind of early investigator is as you're going through your kind of your research parameters and you're starting to think about what are the companies that align with at least the indications you're starting to study or um, what are the therapeutics that you're most interested in using. As you go to those conferences, seek those individuals out that are part of the company and please introduce yourself. Um, a lot of what we do on either the research and the clinical side as we start to get engaged through this, it's name and, and kind of face recognition. Um, the more we start to interact with you, the more we start to recognize what your commitment is really to this field. And so we start to think about you as a potential avenue for either a research or clinical research collaboration, um, which gives you another avenue to put your foot in the door. Or as we start to think about potential sites and thinking about speakers for various engagements. So the biggest thing there is, again, it's um, introduce yourself early, introduce yourself often, maintain that contact and start to think about how all of what they're doing could align with your strategy as well. No, I think I think that's a great answer. The only thing I would add is um, at, at scientific congresses, AAD, SID, SPD, um, many companies will actually have um, representatives from the the clinical development area, um, and you can you can uh, provide them with your contact information as well as uh, asking to be contacted by the the clinical groups within each of the companies. And so the, the medical meetings are a great place to go. I think that's great. How can I not plug the PEDRA meeting, right? <laughs> the annual PEDRA meeting, I would say, for those of you looking to um, get your foot in the door, is a great safe place where people are really uh, approachable and kind and uh, a nice way, as uh, Jim and Michael said, to sort of introduce yourself. And I would add to putting yourself forward is don't be afraid to talk about what you do and what you love and show your passion. That speaks a lot. I found especially to uh, some of the smaller companies and, you know, if you've published in a field, if you're starting to be developed as an expert, you know, say that, put yourself forward. I'm interested. I'd love to do that. I want to switch gears a little bit to something that I think I, I, I spoke about before about a sort of startups and small company startups um, especially someone that, you know, you might be asking you to do of like an early phase two, um, you know, or phase one uh, uh, trial and what can happen? <laughs> what are the some of the risks and pitfalls of venturing that way? Uh, you know, I had an experience where I was, you know, I, I believed in a a compound and, and, and saw sort of the proof of concept. It was a patient population I love. And, um, you know, the, the trial stopped after one or two patients and, you know, it's not going to move forward. And there were, you know, side effects and unexpected things. And I really had gotten my hopes up and I realized, wow, they're really, I didn't even think that that would happen so quickly that we'd be once and done, you know? And so that was an interesting experience for me. Do you all have any thoughts about those initial startups or what if funding goes away? What if the, the, you know, the drug doesn't work or their side effects and things are stopped? Maybe I can I can take a stab at that initially and, and start with the the premise that you know we are doing research and and obviously it's it's human research that that requires um, a lot more oversight um, and and uh, appreciation of the ethical considerations but it's still research and so there are, you know we, we don't know the answer when when we ask the questions hypothesis generation um, and sometimes uh, you get results that are surprising unexpected that lead to a discontinuation of the study. And, you know, the worst case scenario is obviously if you, you see 
uh, unexpected adverse events. Um, but that that can happen. We've we've all seen and heard of examples, both uh, within the industry, but also within academia, where you just don't know, and, and you have these unexpected events that lead to the discontinuation of the study and, and the program. And so that that's just something, unfortunately, that that you can't do anything about because it's a research-oriented field. Um, but in terms of the other things, you know, I, I, I can't comment specifically because I haven't been involved with um, with any of the examples that that you've mentioned. The the just at a high level, I I will say that you, you know when you undertake a study, uh, contract sites and work with them, you, you know you put together an agreement, and um, and and I think uh, companies obviously uh, try to stand by that agreement, live up to their part of the agreement. Dr. Howell, yeah. do you have any thoughts, even particularly financially? I mean, that's never happened to any any colleagues that I know, but uh, you know, certainly a, a risk, right? With smaller companies, less capital. How would somebody know? That's kind of risky. Sure. So just to add on something really quickly to Jim's uh, comments as well, which were absolutely perfect. Um, the one thing that's out there also for investigators as you start to think through this is a lot of the preclinical work that goes into the characterization of molecules comes from either small animals, in vitro kind of experimentation. And, you know, last I checked, human beings are not necessarily mice. Um, and so as you make that transition from kind of the smaller species into the larger non-human primates and then ultimately into the human beings, there's a level of risk that we have to understand comes along with this experimentation. Um, and, and Jim's absolutely 100% correct. There's a hypothesis that we generated at the very beginning when we looked at the target we follow that up trying to identify potential pitfalls along the way, but by no mean is drug development perfect. And so therefore, when you do go into a clinical study, there is an avenue of that there or an aspect of that that is truly still research. And obviously we have to adapt to that as we start to see some of the observations and kind of the outcomes from those clinical trials. Specifically on the smaller side of it, when you think about embarking on clinical studies, in the most cases, we try to do our absolute best from a pharmaceutical and from a biotech perspective, ensuring that there is a commitment to the sites. And, and Jim, again, is absolutely correct there. There are contracts that occur between the sponsoring organization and each one of the clinical sites as it's going forward. But keep in mind that our ultimate responsibility is to the patient and making sure that we are committed to their overall well-being and that in the instance that there does appear to be some level of an adverse event or some other reason to potentially terminate that study, we're going to be able to handle the situation where our commitment really is to handling that situation first and making sure that the patients are safe uh, through that entire end of the trial and as they transition to whatever therapeutic they may need to after that. And then obviously there's an engagement with the particular clinical sites to make sure that we can handle that appropriately. And even in the context of kind of takeovers or mergers or some level of an acquisition, one of the things that has to be worked out before a majority of that takes place is actually the clinical trials. There's a level of ethical responsibility from each one of those organizations to make sure that if you have a patient, for example, who's on some level of therapy uh, for their particular disease of unmet need, that that can remain on the trial as designated. Um, and so that has to all be worked out before that goes forward. Yeah, you're right. I didn't. I wasn't even thinking of that in my initial thought process with that. I was thinking more of the, the financial risk to the, the investigator and the institution, but the, the, the subject is still there needs to be taken care of and and followed. And I think that's where I've learned 
in contract and budget to really make sure you think of everything. The worst case scenario, um, depending on who you're working with, they don't always like that, but you do say, well, we hope we don't have to do this. Uh, but, you know, if extra safety events come up and we have to do a bunch of SUSARs and reviews and, you know, things, it's kind of your preparation for worst case and best case scenario. So that's a good, good reminder. Do you, um, is there a place also I'll kind of, we can uh, look at a, a company and sort of understand how do we know mergers are going to happen? We just sort of wait. Do companies normally tell you as an investigator, hey, this is going on? <laughs> like, what do we look for? <laughs> Simple answer is no. Um, <laughs> the, and maybe Jim has a different experience with this, but usually there are a few select individuals within the organization that have been made aware of some of those partnerships or agreements that are going forward. And obviously, depending on the level of the company, whether or not they're publicly traded, for example, um, there are legal obligations that the company must adhere to to make sure that certain things remain private um, and at least controlled in terms of the distribution. And so in many cases, what will happen, at least in my experience, is that in the cases of those mergers and acquisitions, again, usually the investigator doesn't find out until there's an announcement or a public press release. Uh, and then there's a obvious event that occurs afterwards where um, the, the teams will engage with all the clinical sites, with the clinical um, groups as well, and start to manage what the expectations are. It's not that you suddenly go through a merger and literally there's a switch that's flipped and now you're a new company. There's a transition period in which all of this stuff will go through that process and they'll try to handle it as much as they possibly can. I think uh, what you said is spot on. I think most people don't know uh, uh, if there is going to be either a merger or acquisition until it happens. And, and to, to Michael's point, it, it typically takes uh, months, if not years, for it to uh, to complete, the transaction to complete. So ongoing studies, typically, it, it, it doesn't impact. And I, where, I, where I've seen it potentially impact are programs that are just getting started or have not enrolled any patients. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's where I've seen in the past where when, when there is a change uh, in the company, um, that those are the types of studies that get impacted. And, and the reason is that, that they haven't enrolled any patients, right? Because the, once you make that commitment to patients, you know, you, you keep it. Uh, but the studies that, that have not started yet, those are the studies that, that uh, potentially get, um, that get changed. So, uh, so I think, I think for, for an investigator who is a, a participating in an ongoing study, I would say that uh, that those uh, mergers and acquisitions shouldn't impact that study or for the most part. It's the, the biggest impact is if you know of a study that's going to start in six months and you have a merger um, or an acquisition, then there is a possibility that that study could either be delayed or, or perhaps changed or canceled. Yeah, that's a great point. The This has happened to me a, a few times where there's been an acquisition and it it actually rightly so as you both said did not affect the trial it was more of a administrative paperwork changing of things as you might imagine again that's where it is does cost extra work to your research admin and and things but it really went over very smoothly and also that was with a, a quite a big company and then a smaller rare disease company as well and off the top that was handled super well they pulled us all aside met with us, told us why it was happening, you know, reiterated the mission of the company was still there. So I, I've had fortunately great experiences so far um, and nothing devastating, um, but it's good to hear all your words of wisdom and, and advice and that that usually isn't a super devastating thing. 
as we kind of near the, the end of our questions here, I wanted to ask you both, as far as our investigators and our, and our audience here, what would you offer to a, a young investigator? What piece of advice uh, to a young investigator that's inter interested in working with industry and sort of tapping into that? So my communication to young investigators always is network and then network and then network some more. Um, as you start to think through this, obviously we, from the, the biotech side of it, we cannot think of every potential outcome. We cannot think of every potential experiment to ever run. Um, at least I can't. Um, and so part of what we look to, you know, these conferences and for um, the, the next level of investigators to go through is to help kind of pursue their passions and engage with us a bit more directly in thinking about how they would come through with novel approaches in some of these therapeutic areas with our potential therapeutic interventions. Um, so it's really about engaging early, engage often, and make sure you have a clearly delineated story of where do you think that um, you're actually interested in pursuing your passion and how we can partner through that entire process. And honestly, that'll come through over and over. And that's where, you know, specifically, at least on my side of it, I try to identify up and coming investigators who are really committed to the space. Because quite honestly, what I have found through my career is that they're more amenable to collaborating and starting to really challenge the dogma that's out there and find novel ways to treat patients. That's a really great viewpoint to hear about. I, I love that. I, and I want to just piggyback on that because we talked about all the different ways to interface with people like both of you, you know, would you say meetings like the AAD, some of those forums are, are the best way that you would both prefer to be approached rather than a cold email or, you know, an introduction to a colleague from a colleague sounds great, or someone's kind of finding you at a, at a scientific meeting or a educational meeting. I think all of the above. I think uh, there is no one best way to, to engage. And, and I agree with Michael. I think engagement is critical and and how that engagement uh, is done i don't think it really matters i think uh, it depends on the individual where they are uh, i think uh, i think you mentioned it earlier about about um, their personality and what they're comfortable uh, how they're how comfortable they are uh, you know approaching people they don't know but but networking engaging engagement um, at scientific meetings at clinical meetings and and you know reaching out directly to individuals at, at various companies i think uh, are all great ways of uh of finding out you know who's doing what and and then matching it up to to your interests you know if you have a specific interest you know i think it really depends on the investigator if they have a specific interest in an area you know uh, that would certainly be easier uh, because then you can really find out what companies are doing and which companies are working in that space um, if if you're not sure, you know what what areas, what clinical areas, or what scientific areas that, that you want to focus on, then uh, then it, you'll feel free to to get involved in lots of different things and and try different things and, and figure out you know the area of interest that you want to focus in eventually. So well, there's no one best way to to uh, to make connections and to engage people. I would suggest to people just figure out what works for you and uh, what you're comfortable doing. Oh, this was fantastic. I always have some follow-up questions, but I would love to to see if our studio audience has any questions and not to uh, sort of monopolize these two. I'm Dr. Colleen Cotton. I'm a pediatric dermatologist at Children's National Hospital and also an early investigator uh, just starting up uh, clinical trials at my institution. A question that I have for both of you, I guess, is, um, you know, 
There's a lot of different people that you meet with at all these different companies. Are there any red flags or like things to try to avoid as somebody who's starting out or on the flip side, any like single piece of information that's really helpful for you to know, even if there's just a limited time to sort of have that conversation to make it the most meaningful? It's a great question, quite honestly, because a majority of the time when we meet with young investigators that are trying to get off the ground, the 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 initial red flag that comes to me is that you can accomplish everything that you think we can do, which is unrealistic. Be somewhat focused as you come forward and recognizing what your expertise is and thinking about where you're located and kind of the disease of interest. And rather than trying to, you know, to use a very colloquial phase, but rather than trying to boil the ocean, um, approach it with a, this is what I think I can do. This is how I can partner with your company. And then think about how that's going to be more granular as you go forward, how that's going to evolve into something that's a bit more of a true collaboration at that point. But yeah, if, if you come in and start telling us that, no, 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 I have patients in every single dermatological indication, I can run the entire trials myself. Immediately, there's little buzzers that go off in the back of my head that say, um, not going to happen, not going to happen. And, you know, I, I think that's a great, a great answer. And I, I agree. Um, those are certainly things that that we all look out for. And it and actually points to the, um, I think, uh, uh, the larger point is there are no specific red flags within the research space, right? It's um, the, the, the things that we look out for, whether it's when you're seeing patients or interacting with, with parents um, or actually colleagues, it, it's the same. It's the same type of things we look for in terms of, you know, their listening skills. Um, are they open to new ideas? Um, you know, making sure they're not so a sociopathic tendencies, things like that, right? So those are all things you you, you sort of subtle things. But although the the last one's not that subtle, but uh, but those are the kind of things uh, we look for. All joking aside, but uh, but but there are no specifically specific red flags that we look for in terms of um, of our engagement with with people. And it sounds like on Colleen's flip side of what do you want to hear from them? You sort of touched on that when you touched on the red flags. Like, what do you think you can accomplish? What kind of patients do you have if you're sick? Is there anything else that these young investigators should be telling you that's really helpful for you to know? So maybe I, I can start. So, you know, in the, in the space of clinical research, it, it's such a, um, a high quality area. So what we look for then is people who who know how to document, who, who have a very good attention to detail because it's research, right? It's, it's, you are documenting everything that you're doing, you know, um, you're doing it with the highest quality so that there's no question about the, what you're doing is essentially, or what you've said you've done is what you've done. So, so those are the kind of things, uh, traits that we look for. Yeah. High sense of responsibility, right? I mean, as a PI, you are responsible for everything. And I can imagine someone who doesn't seem to have that attention to detail, maybe a little, I mean, it's in a kind way, a little more lackadaisical or relaxed or may, may not give off that era. Like, I think you're going to really run a tight ship, right? <laughs> and we want right. to. <laughs> and I think it goes back to what Michael was saying, right? If they're, if they're doing everything or being an expert in everything, then yeah. it's much more challenging to really be focused, right? And so those are the kind of things that we look out for um, because at the end of the day, you know, when FDA comes to audit your site, um, you, you want to make sure that everything that you've done is well documented and that there's no question about the quality of work that you've done. Do you, is it bad to have a lot of interest then? No, I, I don't think it is bad to have lots of interest because I think we all have lots of interest. 
but but I can also focus, you know, or at least convey that with your company, I'm going to be focused on this mm-hmm. thing, right? I'm not going to be focused on this and that and this. So so it, it's it's great to be curious. It's great to have lots of uh, scientific questions, uh, but we also want to hear the other end. Is that is okay? Well, if I'm going to work with you. I'm going to really focus on what I'm doing with you and the disease state that I'm working on. Absolutely. Just one other thing to add to that. And I completely echo Jim's comments. As you start to go through this from, you know, an early investigator engaging with pharma and starting to think through this, if you do have certain areas that have potential overlap. So if there are potential, you know, therapeutic indications, dermatological indications where there's a natural progression you would think of disease X and how that's going to apply to disease Y and then to disease Z. Right. There's a way to think about that from a translational side. So when you're running your initial study, if you're capable and, and you know, ultimately, if you move forward with that, um, incorporating some of those uh, avenues within the assessments. And then at the end of the clinical trial, re-engaging with your pharma partner to say, listen, based on some of the outcomes we've seen, based on some of the data, we believe that there's an opportunity to expand this even one step further into these additional diseases. But to Jim's point, it's they want to see that you can execute according to a plan first, um, rather than going through and saying, I'm going to take 10 patients, recruit it for this trial, and five years later, you come back with only recruiting two. Um, they want to see that you can actually complete it according to that, and that it's going to be very focused in terms of the delivery. I'm Grace Akpalia. I'm a second-year medical student at Rush Medical College, so I'm very early in my journey. And um, But I just had a question regarding, you know, there was a lot of talk about the importance of networking. Which avenue has been the most successful, or have you seen folks have the most success um, as far as, like, building collaborations and partnerships? I think um, there is, again, you know, going back to early comments, I don't think there is a sort of the, the one best way. I think it, it depends on the individual and the opportunities that arise for that individual. And so, you know, what I would say is, is just go out there, put yourself out there, uh, engage uh, and attend these conferences that you that fit your schedule. Um, and then I think a, a key part, and maybe it wasn't brought up yet, but a key part of, of the engagement is the follow-up after these meetings um, because you you can you can engage folks and talk to them at the meetings but remember you know it, it doesn't matter if it's colleagues or, or folks who work in the biotech pharma industry they're they're meeting also a lot of other people as well so the the key the key point there is uh, don't assume that they'll remember the the interaction always follow up if, if you really are, are interested in having additional dialogue additional conversations Make sure to follow up with those folks. And, and then, you know, subsequently, even outside of, of the scientific clinical meetings, um, once you once you establish a relationship, uh, remember to email that person, text that person, depending on 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 your questions. And so um, always remember to follow up because I think that that's ultimately the, the in my experience, uh, the most successful uh, form of engagement is just the continuing interaction and it doesn't have to be always at the the scientific clinical meetings. It can be outside of that with via email, via text. I would completely that, echo that. Yeah, it's. Um, I look at individuals that I met through a variety of conferences um, a while ago. I'm not going to put a date in there because then it makes me feel really old. But as we start to go down this path and you start to think about who you've interacted with over the last, say, decade or so, a lot of these were people that first got introduced to us while we were working on a program at another pharmaceutical company. 
that have maintained contact with us through this period of time. And as we start to think about the evolution within the clinical development space for dermatology as a whole, and we've kind of progressed through a variety of diseases, and now we're looking at, you know, what's next um, in terms of the, the next dermatological indication where we're going to see an explosion of both translational clinical research. It's always important to remind those individuals through the years, because um, as we do get older, we forget things. But to always stay present in their mind that you actually are interested in this space, you have a passion for this, and that you're happy to meet up at all of these conferences on a pretty annual basis um, to re-engage with them. I mean, if you guys have ever been to the American Academy of Dermatology, what you'll see for a lot of individuals is, is um, colleagues that are getting together, people that have initially learned to network years ago that stay in contact through the entire process. And just really, it's a re-engagement of acquaintances and colleagues and friends to try and figure out who's doing what cool things. How do we figure out how we're going to all work together and how do we advance the field of science? The one additional thing I think Dr. Price brought it up earlier is uh, it, actually the smaller meetings uh, yeah. are typically higher yield in terms of engagement, right? Because the big meetings, you have, what, 17,000 people yeah. attending AAD, whereas at PEDRA, you'll have about 100. And so... Um, you know, the opportunities for engagement are greater, the small meetings. And, and so, you know, I, I think the, the point that Dr. Uh, Price made earlier is, is a good one. Don't don't forget about the smaller meetings as well. And I think your point, uh, Dr. Howell, about following up, and I think both of you mentioned that I when I first started, I, I expected that because I'd had this great engaging conversation that the person on the other end would be the first to reach out. And it doesn't always happen. And so I think that's really great take people's cards, jot down notes of maybe something you talked about, what they do. Um, I remember coming back from the AD and just having a pack full of cards. And I said, oh, I didn't really write. I know, ex remember exactly who people were. That was lesson number one. Um, but I just ended up like for grace for you, having coffee with people or meeting, you know, by, you know, by the stairs on floor one of the convention center and getting to know people. And even if it's not the right perhaps the right person, it's not the medical science liaison or someone that's doing clinical, they will introduce you to the other people. Once you say, this has been great, how can I learn about the pipeline? How can I get involved? And sometimes you do have to circle back to that person and say, hey, and they don't always connect you, but you do have to be a little persistent. And now, you know, full circle, when I'm getting ready to go to a meeting, I get a lot of texts from people, can you meet up? Can you meet up? And it's like, it's like speed dating a little bit. It is, but you do have to do that. And I would say, especially for people that are already active in trials, it can be a little bit draining for someone that's a little bit more introverted. You've got to do it. I actually have a question related to that. So, you know, you mentioned like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter who you're talking to, even if it's not the right person, like they can hopefully connect you with the right person. So I, I have started to make these connections. And, and so I do have, as, as meetings are coming up, I get emails from different people. And sometimes I will get emails from three different people from the same company, particularly true for larger pharma companies. And I don't want to be rude to any of them, but I also don't want to meet with the same company three separate times, with three separate people. So what's the best way to go about being polite, showing that you're engaged, but also trying to be the most efficient and make the most of their time as well as your time. No, that, that actually happens more frequently uh, than you realize. I think that the, the best thing to do is be direct with those individuals. They 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 have thick skin. So if you just tell them, hey, look, um, I'm talking to these, you know, this other person from your company, can we meet together um, is, is usually a, a, a good approach, asking them, Hey, can you guys meet together? Just because you guys both have reached out to me, 
they they won't take a front to that. They they you know they understand, and sometimes you know they they get their signals crossed and don't communicate internally as well as they should. And so uh, just just be very open and upfront with them, and uh, this way you can reduce the the extra work, the redundancy that's really not necessary. One of the advantages of a small biotech is quite honestly, with 15 people, the person you're going to probably interact is just me. So um, it's a little easier on my side. <laughs> I don't have to worry so much about uh, conflicting meetings there. But no, Jim's point's absolutely well taken. And that is a nice part about smaller biotech I, that I do really enjoy is that to me, there seems to be a little less turnover at times. People tend to stay a little bit longer, stay in that space or that area. I feel like I get a little bit of a better relationship, although lots of people move around to lots of different places mm-hmm. that can be tough too. Um, what do you think is the, for someone someone like Grace, is there, and this is just going to be a quick answer, is there one particular person that if she walks up to a booth or something, she says, I would like to talk to the vice president of medical affairs, or I would like to talk to your clinical trials manager. Like, what's the person to ask for? Well, many companies, uh, the booths will be manned by medical affairs. Mm-hmm. And so that that's usually the, the best uh, interface with most companies. Obviously, with Michael's companies, different, smaller companies. Um, but with the midsize or larger pharma, the medical affairs group is, is usually the best contact. The, my, my only other comment, though, as you start to think about some of the other smaller companies as well. So, I mean, as Jim alluded to, so I'm both medical affairs um, and scientific and research. Uh, so scientific comparison research and stuff. So you end up with multiple hats that you end up wearing. I guess the, the biggest question really is, as you start to think about engaging with a company, what is it that you're hoping to get out of it? Is it more knowledge about the company as a whole? Are you really looking to engage with them on a um, getting involved in kind of the clinical research aspects of it? Um, you know, as you, you think about it as a second year med student, are you looking for other opportunities? What else can I do with a medical degree? Um, you know, for example, my CEO graduated with a medical degree and ended up going into uh, get his MBA at McKinsey and um, became a biotech venture capitalist. So there's a lot of different things you can do. I guess it really depends on what you want to get out of that interaction. Have you, you ought to look up Advancing Innovation in Dermatology. Um, AID actually has a really nice mentorship program where they're trying to connect early stage medical students with pharma and biotech companies to start to get their foot in the door. And Colleen, that might be a good thing for you as well, depending on some of the trials. It's usually for a small externship, but that's just to get your name in there. The The other one that comes up is SID actually has their um, kind of resident program that they do at the very beginning. And I've participated in that. I still, from 10 years ago, when I actually led on the PhD side of it, uh, for some of the individuals that com- were coming through, I've maintained contact with them through the the last decade or so um, and have followed their careers quite intently to try and figure out where they are and see if there's opportunities to collaborate with them. And and again, it really comes back to introduce yourself early, introduce yourself often. Um, I know it's hard at times, but don't be afraid to either pick up a phone, write an email, or when you see them walking down the hall um, at a meeting, grab them. Great. Those are those are excellent points. Yeah. So I I, I love that. Your two big take homes, I think, is know your mission, know what you want to ask, <laughs> what you're coming there for, right? Um, who you need to ask for, you know, ha- have a story, right? Um, have a goal and, and be communicative and network. So this is great. I have so enjoyed talking with all of you. 
um, especially Dr. Howell and Dr. Lee. Like, I feel like I could ask you a thousand more questions, but so I think we could conclude um, and thank you again, both for, for spending an hour with us and some of the prep time in our studio audience for having such great questions and, and hanging through with us and, and being a part of this podcast. And we're really excited to see what our future audience uh, likes. I think this was so applicable to both uh, young and mid and, and investigators uh, it, like myself and people starting out. So thank you again. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you so very much to our guests, Dr. Jim Lee and Dr. Michael Howell. This was a wonderful program, great insights, great networking takeaways. So thank you both so much to our speakers. And also, as always, thank you to our host, Dr. Harper Price. For more PEDRA programming, please check us out on our website at pedraresearch.org, or you can follow us on our social media channels. We are on X, formerly known as Twitter. We are on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube, all at Peter Research. Be sure to subscribe to Peter Pearls so you never miss an episode and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening.